It seems I've talked to a lot of people this morning who are discouraged for various reasons and downcast, and that's the common human experience. We all go through that. And yet, as the song we just sang says, at the end of all of it, we know the outcome is secure. Christ will triumph. And that was the theme of our Scripture reading. I hope you listened this morning. He read all of Psalm 27. That's going to be the passage we'll look at. And if it sounds like one of the most familiar psalms in the Psalter to you, that's no wonder because several of our best-loved anthems and choruses are based on Psalm 27. We sing from this text all the time, and in fact, phrases and verses from this passage kind of circulate in my mind all the time because so many of our worship songs come from here. But uh, I, I love preaching on this psalm. This is a psalm of David. It was written during one of the many times in his life when trouble had hounded him into exile. The whole psalm is about faith in those times of trouble. And, and in fact, there's no indication in the psalm itself as to when David wrote it, which makes it interesting to try to pin this down. What part of David's life did this come from? And the fact is, it could pertain to almost any period of David's life after Samuel anointed him to be king. Some think that the reference to David's father and mother in verse 10 proves that Psalm 27 pertains to his earlier, an early period in his life. And I'm more inclined to think this probably comes out of his later life because it's so full of the confidence that grows out of experience and maturity. The Lord did deliver David out of all his troubles, and he had done it so many times in the past that by the time David wrote this, this whole psalm has the ring of seasoned reflection from someone who is mature and has learned to wait on the Lord. And that's the conclusion he comes to, just wait on the Lord. The truth is that in a timeline of David's life, Psalm 27 could pretty well describe his experience at just about any given point. The question of when David wrote this psalm isn't really ultimately important. Just know that this is one of many psalms that David wrote in times of trouble while he was wrestling with the very same things we all struggle with, depression and discouragement and a deep sense of betrayal or fear. And in fact, if you take a big-picture look at the life of David, it is really remarkable how much and how long he suffered. The only really trouble-free period in David's whole life was his childhood and his teenage years when he was serving as a shepherd over his father's flocks. And then according to 1 Samuel 16, David was suddenly called into the fields in from the fields one day, and, and Samuel anointed him as king of Israel in a private ceremony in David's father's house, and David therefore became Israel's second king. Saul was still on the throne at the time, but Saul was not God's choice, never was in the first place. Saul was, you know, the people's choice, and you remember they selected him because of his physical stature. Saul, of course, proved to be a carnal man and an unsatisfactory king. And so after a few significant spiritual failures, the Lord rejected Saul and, and sent Samuel to anoint David as his successor, and David's life was never again peaceful after that. It was one long chronicle of conflict and war and frustration and struggle. Saul was still on the throne 
during David's rise to prominence in the nation. And of course, Saul became jealous, so David had to spend years hiding from Saul, who Saul became obsessed with trying to kill David. And then when Saul finally died, the Hebrew nation was torn by civil war because we looked at this a couple weeks ago, because there was a large faction in Israel who opposed David. They wanted Saul's family to be the successors. And David finally won triumph in that conflict and unified Israel, managed to unify the nation. But then he spent years at war with the Philistines and the Amorites and the Moabites and practically every neighboring tribe and nation. And then after that, David's own son, Absalom, attempted to usurp the throne and and he drove David out of Jerusalem and into exile again. Absalom eventually came against David with an army of more than 20,000 men, his own son, so that that kind of trouble more or less dominated David's public life from start to finish. So it's no wonder that our Psalter is full of psalms about David's trouble, and they are some great psalms. We tend to love these psalms because they express David's frustration in human terms, the way we can relate to, and yet they also point the way through trouble to triumph. And in fact, there's a pattern that David normally followed when, whenever he would pour out his frustration in the Psalms. Usually, he would begin with a very honest outpouring of his complaint to God in words that are full of feeling, deep with passion and emotion. That's why we find it so easy to relate to David. We felt those passions. That's why the Psalms resonate so powerfully with us in times of fear and trouble and failure, David expresses his emotions in a way that we all know all too well. He gets frustrated with so many trials, just the number of them. He he grows weary of all the strife. He wonders where God is in the absurdity of human injustice. He becomes exasperated when it seems like the Lord is slow in coming to the defense of His own people. And as David describes, Whatever injustice or sorrow or whatever other kind of affliction he was suffering, he expresses his emotions always without apology in raw and honest language. And he's never irreverent, but he's always bold and direct. And I love that. And you do too, I'm sure. And Psalm 13, we've looked at in the past, is sort of the quintessential example of that style. It's it's the one that starts with an expression of frustration. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then the first two-thirds of that short psalm are a drawn-out expression of David's dismay because it seemed like the Lord was postponing His deliverance. Psalm 13, verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Verse 4, my enemy will say I've prevailed over him. My foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. And David's saying, that's not what you want, is it, Lord? And I know those feelings. Don't you? I've been in that place. But in most of these Psalms where David wrote about his troubles, there's usually, in fact, almost always a turning point where David shifts his focus. And as he pours out his heart to the Lord, he naturally begins to focus his thoughts on the Lord. And there he finds hope 
in the midst of every trial because he knows the Lord is faithful. And psalm after psalm that begins on a note of fear or crushing sorrow, all of them close with a profound expression of hope or faith. Psalm 13, for example, the one I'm talking about, starts with that cry of anguish and frustration, how long, O Lord? But it ends just six verses later with this, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. And Psalm 17, we've also studied that one in the past, follows the same pattern, opens with a heartfelt plea from the psalmist who is a victim of obvious injustice, and he he starts out just saying, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. And then he pleads his case for 14 verses, rehearsing a, a testimony about his own faithfulness. He recalls the Lord's faithfulness and tenderness. He recounts all the many evil attributes of his enemies, and that makes him then look at his troubles from the perspective of eternity, and he realizes that even though it feels, you know, in this life, like he's sometimes on the precipice of hell, the trials of this life, he realizes this is as close to hell as I'll ever be, but this is also as close to heaven as those wicked adversaries will ever come. And for David, and and really for all of the Lord's redeemed ones, we realize the troubles of this life no matter how bad they feel right now, they're always only temporary. And because David trusted the Lord for salvation, he had the guarantee of ultimate eternal satisfaction in the presence of the Lord. So that's how Psalm 17 closes, with this sort of classic expression of assurance. As for me, he says, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 27 is similar to those psalms in one regard, and if you haven't turned there, turn there now. This was written at some point when David was under siege, living in exile, troubled on all sides and tempted like any of us would be to become discouraged and downcast and fearful, and yet this psalm is dramatically different from all those other psalms that David wrote in times of trouble because it actually starts where those other psalms ended. It begins on a powerful note of triumph and then just builds from there. And in fact, the very first verse gathers up all of David's troubles, looks them square in the eye, and just defies them with a song of praise to God. This is the best way to deal with your trials. This is a celebration of light in a world of darkness. It's a song of deliverance penned on a sea of difficulties. It's David's recognition that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, and it sets forth an unassailable reason for courage in the midst of our discouragement. And that's why I'm inclined to think this psalm probably pertains to David's later life. Here's a man who has learned that the best answer to all of life's darkest, most discouraging trials is simply praise rendered to God. And that has become now the starting point for David whenever his heart is troubled. And in fact, that is the central message of this psalm. If you wanted to sum it up in a single sentence, you could hardly do any better than this. He's teaching us that the remedy for all of this life's trials and discouragement is worship. That's it. David, who who suffered more than most of us could possibly imagine, learned through his suffering that worship is the best way through our trials. 
Worship is a uniquely heavenly activity. All of heaven is consumed full-time with giving praise to God, and therefore nothing on this sin-cursed earth could possibly get us closer to the atmosphere of heaven than when we are engaged in worship, real worship from the heart. And so if you want to be elevated above the pain and frustration of a cursed world and, and lifted above a life that is cursed with difficulty, there is no better, no more direct, and no more efficient way to get from here to heaven than simply by focusing your heart on praise. David had learned by long experience that worship offers the best sanctuary for someone looking for an escape from earthly trouble, no matter what form our troubles take, because worship transports us out of this world's darkness and misery and into the presence of the Lord, who the Lord Himself is our light and our salvation. And so this is a psalm about finding sanctuary from life's troubles. David is singing about because he knew a place of heavenly peace and safety that he could retreat to in any kind of earthly trouble. And that place of sanctuary is the main theme of this psalm. There are three parts to the psalm. Verses 1 through 6 are a kind of testimony given to the whole world about David's unshakable confidence in the Lord. Then verses 7 through 12 are a prayer addressed to God where he's seeking immediate deliverance from whatever evil it was that his enemies wanted to do to him. And then the the closing verses, 13 and 14, are a sermon that David preaches to himself, reminding himself of the main lesson that he learned through a lifetime of suffering. And so you have a testimony, a prayer, and a sermon in that order, and we'll let that outline be the framework for how we look at this psalm. And so with with that as an introduction, we've already read the psalm. I just want to point out to you the central theme, and we'll look at how it runs through each of the three parts of this psalm as it ties them together. By the way, one of the commentaries I read about this psalm said this is a psalm about balancing the ups and downs of real life, which seems like an awfully trivial way of putting it. And I hope you can see that. The ups and downs of David's life were hardly trifling things. And when he speaks in verse 3 about an enemy encamping against him, that was exactly the kind of trial he faced in the most literal sense. His enemies were more numerous and more powerful than most of the problems you and I will ever face. In fact, all of us put together in this room wouldn't face trials as severe as David did. His life was quite literally in mortal jeopardy virtually all the time, and the times he had to spend in exile were truly costly to him in every conceivable sense. Those were real and imminent dangers that he faced, and yet he found the Lord a sufficient shelter in the very worst of times. He said, the Lord is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, to borrow words from... Psalm 46, verse 1, or verse 11 of that psalm, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That is the same message that's featured in this psalm. Here in Psalm 27, David is giving us this threefold reminder that the Lord Himself is the best place for the believer to find true protection, a stronghold, no matter how fiercely the storms of life might blow. And the first part is a testimony to the world, verses 1 through 6. 
Let's look at that section first. This is a testimony to the world. The psalm opens with this trumpet blast of faith and assurance. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And now, if that verse were all we had, if we stopped without reading the rest of the psalm, you might never know that this is the expression of a troubled heart, because it's a a declaration of fearlessness right at the start. David was a naturally courageous personality type. You know, even in his adolescent years, he was generally fearless. You see that clearly in 1 Samuel 17, where David first encounters Goliath. Everyone else, you know, is cowering in terror at the sight of this giant. David comes along. He's still basically an adolescent, and yet he's amazed that no one had yet struck Goliath dead. His reaction, 1 Samuel 17, 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then David recounted how while he was working as a shepherd, he had killed both lions and bears, and he told Saul, this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And here in our psalm, David gives a testimony that explains that courage. It's not the carnal courage of an impetuous person who trusts in his own strength. It's a different kind of courage that arises from faith in God. David doesn't trust his own skill. He trusts the Lord, who is his light and his salvation and his stronghold. And notice, he doesn't say the Lord brings salvation or that he gives light. David's point is that the Lord is those things, so that the one who lays hold of God by faith has everything necessary to answer all the darkness and trouble of this life, because God is our light and salvation and strength and protection. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said about Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Christ is wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our salvation and sanctification and wisdom. He is our righteousness. In in fact, that's even one of the names of God. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, this is the name by which He will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So He is the only real righteousness we possess. His righteousness, which is imputed to those who trust Him, That provides everything we need for a right standing before God, a safe standing in the presence of God. And though it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, if you're clothed in His own righteousness, you've nothing to fear, and that's what David is celebrating here. And David, of course, looked forward to a redemption that he couldn't possibly understand completely. He didn't know that God would come to earth in human form in the person of Jesus Christ, who was David's own promised son, his offspring, David had no way of knowing that Christ Himself would be the perfect sacrifice to take away sins forever. But he got the gist of it. He understood the Lord is our salvation. And that's exactly what he means when he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That's the gospel summarized really superbly in the opening phrase of David's testimony. And it's a testimony. It's not about David. It's about God. David is saying nothing here about his own strength or skill or sanctification. His confidence in no sense rests in his own abilities. David is celebrating the greatness of God. He's not boasting about his own valor when he says, 
Who, who do I need to be afraid of? He's not boasting there. He's expressing his confidence in God. So this is a psalm of praise to God. It's not a celebration of David's superiority. And yet, notice, it is personal. The Lord is my light and my salvation. David's faith in God was personal, and therefore his assurance was personal. David could be confident that the Lord was on his side because he'd laid hold of the Lord by faith. He had entrusted himself to the Lord's care. Verse 1, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. The Lord Himself was the only safe place David could retreat to. And the Lord fought for David repeatedly. Although David's life had been this long chronicle of conflict, it was also the story of triumph over every foe. David's only failures were his personal moral lapses, such as his sin with Bathsheba. But his conflicts with all of those earthly enemies always ended with victory for David. Verses 2 and 3 testify to that fact. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident." By the way, the fierceness of David's adversaries is captured perfectly in verse 2, which pictures them as cannibals or wild beasts, hungry for violence against him out of sheer evil bloodlust. That's what he means when he says, they eat up my flesh. He doesn't mean that in a literal sense. He's saying, this is how vicious they are. But no matter how evil or how determined they were, God had always preserved David, and He always did. And it was his enemies who always stumbled and fell, starting with Goliath, all the way through to Absalom, who was, you remember, defeated because his long hair got caught in an oak tree. So it was the Lord's doing. And it also never mattered how large or powerful David's enemies were. David managed to elude Saul and all his armies with just a few hundred men who lived in caves like outlaws until... Saul actually fell on his own sword in a disastrous battle against the Philistines. And on the day Absalom's rebellion was overthrown, 2 Samuel 18 verse 7 says, 20,000 men in Absalom's army were killed on that one day. And so neither the size nor the ferocity of David's enemies were ever any reason for him to fear. The Lord had always delivered him, and the Lord had done it again and again from every earthly enemy. That is literally the story of David's life. And notice, too, he speaks of the Lord's deliverance as a present tense reality. Even though he's waiting on the Lord, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And as he rehearses the way that the Lord has always delivered him, he keeps his testimony in the present tense. When evildoers assail me, it is they who stumble and fall as if to say, that's how it always happens. It's happening even now to whatever the current cast of enemies is. Verse 3, the war will rise against me, yet I will be confident. Again, his hope is in the Lord, not in his own strength. In fact, this is the furthest thing from carnal confidence. But here's another remarkable thing about this psalm. In this psalm, this is unusual in a way, in the whole psalm, notice there is not one single imprecatory plea against his enemies. When you get to the prayer section in verses 7 through 12, 
you'll see that David's prayer is full of petitions for himself, and he acknowledges his need for the Lord's grace and mercy. He praises the Lord for His faithfulness. He pleads to the Lord to teach him and lead him and keep him safe. And there's not one word about the destruction of his enemies, because in this psalm, David is treating that as a given. Not that David was showing here some kind of postmodern charity towards the evildoers, you know, pretending that he might win them over if he's just nice to them. God would cause David's enemies to stumble and be destroyed in the same way He always had. David just had already expressed his absolute confidence in that certainty. He doesn't need to pray for it. Elsewhere throughout the Psalms, and this troubles a lot of people, but I don't think it should, David did pray imprecatory prayers. He'd call for the downfall of his adversaries, and there was nothing wrong with that because they were truly evil men with evil agendas. And so he frequently prayed against them. But that's not the point of this psalm. This is a psalm about a higher principle. And David himself spells out that principle for us in verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That's, by the way, the the key verse of this psalm. And it's, it's a perfect summary of the whole message. In the midst of so much trouble, David only desired one kind of safety. He wanted to be in the Lord's house with the Lord's people, beholding the beauty of the Lord in worship in a corporate setting, basically. This is the best preview of heaven that was available to David, and therefore this is the one thing that even thinking about it, praying about it, would lift him above the troubles of this life and into the heavenly realm. And that says a lot about the importance of worship, doesn't it? And I want you to notice, first of all, it's not a truth that David isolates in this one psalm. The psalms are full of similar expressions. One of the first verses of Scripture I ever memorized as a child was Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's the whole theme of Psalm 84, verse 1, my soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. David loved to be in the temple praising God. This is the purest kind of joy He knew anywhere on earth, in the the midst of all the wars and so much conflict, this was the one form of sanctuary David craved above all. Verse 5, for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. That word pavilion, by the way, it, it evokes the imagery of a military encampment. Pavilion, that's a great word. It's derived actually from the French word for butterfly because the king's pavilion was normally the the most colorful, ornate tent in, in the camp. It had a peaked top that gave it the impression of butterfly wings. The king's pavilion would always be at the center of the camp because if any enemy wanted to infiltrate, he would first have to get past rank after rank of armed men. And so the 
king's pavilion was the safest place in the camp. And it was a high privilege just to be allowed entry there. To dwell in there permanently was, in effect, to share the king's own privileges. So this is a bold request that David makes. But he craves that place of sanctuary, a place of relief and safety from the troubles that are being heaped on him by his enemies. He's always found the, the best safety from those trials is the place of worship, closest to the Lord. And therefore, he says, this is the one thing he has desired from the Lord, one thing, verse 4. When I was thinking about that expression, it reminded me of that moment in Luke 10 where Jesus is in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha, you know, is fussing around with all the details of being a good hostess, and she's collecting dishes and serving refills and tidying up the kitchen and, and whatever it is that hostesses do for their guests, while Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to Him worshiping Him. And Martha gets frustrated with Mary and actually makes a kind of backhanded rebuke at Jesus for not encouraging Mary to get busy serving, Luke 10, 40. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And the next two verses say, and Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Listen to Jesus there. One thing is necessary, worship. David understood that. It's the one thing he seeks in Psalm 27. Now, notice the setting of this psalm in the canon. It comes right between two other psalms that also celebrate the joy of seeking the Lord in His holy tabernacle. Psalm 26, verse 6 says, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. But verse 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. Verse 12, in the great assembly I will bless the Lord. Then one psalm after this one, Psalm 28, verses 2 and 3, we read, I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, the workers of evil. That's David's perspective. He hated nothing more than the assembly of evildoers. And that is the starting point of Psalm 1, isn't it? The, the blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And conversely, he loved nothing more than worshiping the Lord and the beauty of holiness with people who shared his love for the Lord. You know, the worldly church of our generation has it exactly backwards. In fact, it's hard sometimes nowadays to... This is going to sound harsh, but it's true. It's hard to differentiate between the church and the assembly of evildoers. Just watch some of these church services on YouTube. It's rare to find Christians who truly love the worship of the Lord as much as they do worldly recreation. And this Sunday in particular, churches actually close their services or, or hold Super Bowl parties instead of worshiping the Lord. Some churches have actually cultivated an appetite for entertainment and fostered an atmosphere of amusement that drowns out authentic worship. So it's no wonder if this psalm 
sounds a little bit odd to postmodern ears. Our minds are full of worldly distractions. Our eyes are assaulted almost nonstop with, with every day with advertising and entertainment that is designed purposely to appeal to the basest kinds of carnal lust. We frankly have a hard time understanding what David meant when he talked about beholding the beauty of the Lord. The tabernacle of David's time was a temporary makeshift arrangement on Mount Moriah. It wasn't until Solomon that there was a permanent temple. In 2 Chronicles 1 verse 3, we're told that the tabernacle Moses built, which the Israelites had carried through the wilderness, it was being kept at Gibeon. Presumably most of the tabernacle's furnishings were kept there as well until Solomon finally brought everything to the temple on Mount Moriah. During David's reign, the tent that was situated there on Mount Moriah on the, on the future temple grounds in Jerusalem, it was just a temporary place David had prepared as a shelter for the Ark of the Covenant. There was nothing elaborate about it. And in fact, David himself didn't think the temporary tabernacle was even adequate, and he pleaded with God to let him, let David build a a permanent, more elaborate temple. That's what he wanted. So understand what he's saying in our psalm. It was not the structure, not the location per se, that gave him a place of sanctuary or a domain of great beauty. The beauty of the Lord he wanted to behold had absolutely nothing to do with the temple itself or the furnishings. And it wasn't about the rituals involved in the sacrifice because nothing beautiful about that. These were deliberately bloody and anything but beautiful. But when David speaks of the beauty of the Lord in verse 4, he's talking there about the glories of divine truth, the truth as it's revealed in God's Word, which is the truth on which Israel's worship was based. And that's reflected in these very Psalms. This was the music of Israel's worship, revealed truth, Scripture. God's Word in written form, celebrating His attributes, rehearsing His faithfulness, exalting His glory, just the way this psalm does. And Israel's worship was so much focused that way, so much focused on the truth about God that had been revealed in verbal form, that the important thing about the psalms themselves was not the musical accompaniment that they were sung to, it was the truth they conveyed. We know that the psalms were sung, and in fact, Psalm 150 outlines a whole orchestra of musical instruments and percussion things that accompanied these psalms. But think about this, the tunes weren't preserved for us, the words were. And for all the debates and arguments about musical styles of worship in the church today, don't lose sight of the fact that the real beauty of Israel's corporate worship was embodied in the truth conveyed in those psalms, not the, not the sound of the music, not in the musical style, not in the tunes, in Hebrew poetry even. It's the ideas that rhyme, not the sound of the words, and that's why Hebrew poetry is full of parallelisms. The beauty is unveiled in the truth those words express. That's why Scripture was at the heart of all true corporate worship in Israel. You see that clearly in Nehemiah 8 where the people of Jerusalem stood for hours as the priests simply read the Word of God. And that, I think, is the beauty David 
is writing about in this psalm. When he speaks in verse 4 about inquiring at the temple, that's the, that's the implication here. He wanted to learn more about God and immerse himself in the truth of God's Word, which is where the beauty and the glory of the Lord are most clearly unveiled for us. You'll see David's passion for the truth expressed again in the prayer section of this psalm, especially verse 11, where he prays, "'Teach me your way, O Lord.'" But before we leave this first point, let me point out a couple of more features of David's testimony to a hostile world. Don't miss the tone of unshakable confidence that runs through those first six verses. The first verse twice raises the question of whom David has to fear with the Lord as his fortress. It's the very same note of confidence the Apostle Paul sounds in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verses 2 and 3, he rehearses the fact that his enemies always meet their downfall. Verse 4, he testifies that he desires this one thing from the Lord, a permanent place of habitation and sanctuary and worship in the Lord's own house. And then in verses 5 and 6, he expresses confidence that the Lord will grant that one request. In the secret place of His tabernacle, He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in His tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord." Now here's a geographical fact. The place where David brought the Ark of the Covenant to rest was the highest point in the ancient city of Jerusalem. Even today there is a rock that protrudes from the top of the Temple Mount. I've seen it. Today it's inside the mosque that's known as the Dome of the Rock, which derives its name from that high outcropping of rock. And David pictures himself situated on a high rock like that, safely inside the Lord's own pavilion, lifted far above His enemies. It's, it's, the, it's an image of the, the victor's position. And to David, this would be the very pinnacle of earthly victory to offer sacrifices of joy in His tabernacle and sing praises to the Lord. Now, let's be honest, that requires most of us to adjust our own thinking a little bit, doesn't it? Because think about this. The one thing David desired more than anything else in life is something you and I could do, can do freely anytime we like. We can enjoy the fellowship of God's people in unbridled worship together right here. We get to behold the beauty of the Lord and hear His truth taught clearly from perhaps the best preacher of our generation in depth all the time, every week. And if the weekly corporate gatherings of our church aren't enough, we can listen to recorded sermons again and again. We're not being pursued by armies. We're not being hounded by evildoers who want to kill us. Well, most of us aren't. There are a few who might be. <laughs> and yet, sometimes we act as if there's more pleasure to be found in worldly diversions than in heavenly worship. Sometimes we act as if the assembly of evildoers has more to offer than the congregation of the Lord. And if that's the true measure of where our hearts are, then a lot of us need to repent. David's prayer needs to be our prayer. 
So look at the second section of this psalm. It is the prayer, a prayer to God, verses 7 through 12. And we can't spend a lot of time in this section. I've already pointed out a few things about it. But the thing to notice, first of all, is that there is a distinct change in tone starting with verse 7. Up to that point, David is confident. He's resolute. He's fearless. But starting in verse 7, he's pleading with God for help. And the shift is so dramatic that some commentators have suggested that maybe these are really two different psalms written by different authors. And of course, that's rubbish. There is no incompatibility between the faith David expresses in the first six verses and the plea for divine grace he makes in in the next six verses. And in fact, David's prayer for grace and mercy simply underscores what we've already said about the tone of the opening verse. This is not carnal self-confidence. This is an expression of trust from someone who knows that his only hope is in the Lord, and he's cast himself on God alone for redemption from the guilt of his sin, from, for deliverance from the evil consequences of sin in this life. And so this prayer is, first of all, the cry of a penitent heart. He begins the prayer section with an explicit plea for grace and mercy. Be gracious to me, verse 7 and verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Now, think about that. Implicit in those expressions is a recognition from David that he has sinned. He is not worthy of the Lord's goodness to him. But he recognizes his profound need for divine grace, and he has both the faith and the courage to plead for it, and the candor, the honesty, which highlights the difference between worldly anxiety and godly fear. David detested one kind of fear, and he cultivated the other kind of fear. When it came to his enemies, he was heroic. He refused to waste any energy worrying about what they might think of him or what they might do to him. But when it came to the Lord, David knew that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so after declaring that he's unafraid, even when he's surrounded by whole armies of human adversaries, he pleads with God for mercy and grace. And I pointed out earlier that David's prayer is devoid of any pleas for the destruction of his enemies. He's not praying against them. What he does pray for is a clearer image of God, a clearer vision of God. This is a perfect parallel and really just a further elaboration on the one thing he says he desires, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wants that unobstructed vision of God's glory. Verse 9, hide not your face from me. That's poetic language, of course. He doesn't literally expect to look into the face of God. In Exodus 33, 20, God says to Moses, you can't see my face because no man shall see me and live. But remember that David, in this context here, in this immediate context, is acknowledging his sinfulness and his need for divine grace. Hide not your face from me. That's simply another way of pleading for God's mercy. It's a parallel to the next expression, turn not your servant away in anger. In other words, don't turn away from me and don't turn me away from you. And also, when you read it in light of verse 8, it underscores the fact that what David really sought was truth, and specifically truth about God, a clearer understanding of God's self-revelation. Verse 8, you've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. David declares 
his obedience to the Word of God by echoing what God has said and then owning the Lord's commandment as the desire of his heart. And the command in this case was to seek the Lord's face, to pursue a knowledge of God as God has revealed Himself. And in David's own words, he had already declared that this was the deepest desire of his heart to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And therefore, he says, verse 11, "'Teach me your way, O Lord.'" By the way, that's a prayer the Lord will always answer because it is in perfect accord with His will for us. Now before we move on, notice verse 10, "'For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in.'" Now. I don't think we're supposed to imagine that David's mother and father had literally turned against him. There's nothing in Scripture that ever suggests that David's relationship with his parents was strained in any way. And in fact, when he was still a fairly young man hiding in a cave from Saul, 1 Samuel 22.1 says, David's parents came to be with him. Far from turning him away, they went into exile with him. He was so concerned for their welfare that 1 Samuel 22.3 says he traveled to Moab, a, nature, a, a neighboring nation, and made a treaty with the Moabite king to provide his parents a place of safe refuge. And verse 10 probably suggests that by the time David wrote this psalm, his parents were dead so that they could no longer stand with him against his enemies. That's, I think, what he means. They have forsaken me. Not that they literally turned their backs on him, but they were gone. They were dead. David is simply contrasting that with his recognition that the Lord will be with him forever. And then the prayer section closes with this, verse 11, "'Lead me on a level path because of my enemies.'" In other words, smooth out all the bumps in the road of life that my enemies place there, all those speed bumps and obstructions so that I can easily devote myself to the duty of seeking your face. Verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Hide me, hold me, keep me safe, grant me sanctuary in your pavilion. Remember, that's the theme that ties this whole psalm together. And it's still the one thing that David has asked of the Lord the whole essence of his prayer here. It's a prayer for sanctuary in the Lord's own presence, a prayer that is every bit as bold as the testimony David began the psalm with. So we've heard his testimony, we've listened in on his prayer. This last brief section of the psalm is a sermon to himself, verses 13 through 14. He's preaching to himself. These two short closing verses constitute the sermon at the end of this psalm. I love the way David ends his psalm. He's not like today's worship leaders where they have to sing the last verse two or three times no matter what. I don't know why they do that. David doesn't. He closes it with a, a very specific and sharply punctuated sermon to himself. Verse 13, it's, a, it's another affirmation of David's conviction that the Lord is on his side. It's an emphatic statement of his trust in the Lord. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, the grammatical construction in the Hebrew words reads like a conditional statement, unless I believed. And in fact, most modern translations 
supply words to fill in what the Hebrew text merely implies. So if you're reading, for example, the New American Standard Bible, that's what we read aloud this morning, it says this, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That in David's mind is the singular answer to absolute despair in a sin-cursed world. How do people make it who don't trust the Lord in a world that is as cursed with sin and difficulty as ours? I don't know. David's saying, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. To look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's the answer to all these troubles. It's, it's what he has been saying from the beginning. If you want an answer to the troubles of this life, you will never find any satisfactory answer apart from a clear vision of the beauty of the Lord. And so, if you struggle under a heavy load of trials as David did, set your heart on worship and wait on the Lord. This is a, not only a powerful expression of David's faith, it's also a practical reminder to himself that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. David's prayer in verse 11 was, teach me your way, O Lord. Lesson number one, Isaiah 55, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord's. And one of the things you see sort of echoed frequently in the Psalms is that God's timing, something as basic as that, God's timing, the speed or lack of speed with which He answers, is rarely in sync with our expectations. So it's crucial to wait on Him. Run ahead and you're stuck with what you can do in your own strength. Wait on the Lord and both your faith and your energy will be strengthened, renewed. And that is why worship offers such a perfect place of refuge in the midst of all this world's troubles. That's the very message of Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. Listen to that text, and I'll close with this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the privilege of worship in a place of safety. Give us a true love for worship, and may we learn to worship in spirit and in truth. Forgive us for being so easily distracted by the amusements and entertainments of this world. May we learn to behold Your beauty, and may we prize the vision of that beauty as David did above every earthly value. Teach us, especially in the trials of this life, to turn to You in worship and lead us on a level path for the sake of Your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.